It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman, along with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. You can hear us right here at drstuespodcast.com, or you can uh, listen on iTunes, subscribe to the feed, and you'll get an email alert every time there's a brand new episode of Dr. Stu's podcast with Dr. Stuart Fishbein here. I'm Brian Whitman. I was having a weird thing with your name. Yeah, you're having trouble with my name today. It happens to broadcasters sometimes. I got it in my head. It's too many syllables. That saying Dr. Stu's podcast was going to be tough. Yeah. And I did it three or four times. And I know, maybe we'll keep it and we'll, and we'll play it for everybody. Oh, at the Christmas party, at the Dr. <laughs> no, Dr. No. Stu's podcast. We'll leave it on the podcast. Okay, yeah, that's fine. We'll we talk can, to yeah. producer Randy about yeah. that. Do you, do you know, can you do that now? Can you roll that back right now so we can hear that? Oh, no. All right. Okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> no, but it was uh, it was good times. It was. Uh, by the way, people are, I know this was already two podcasts ago, but you had an important conversation with Randy Wang, and I was there, uh, talking about Maddie, your daughter, who's 17, and whether or not she could go to Coachella. Randy, in lightning speed, having been to Coachella, managed to convince you, no way, terrible idea to send Maddie to Coachella. Well, he said he said it was a, a complete drug fest, is what he said. And I believe what he also crazy. said, uh, this is a direct quote, everyone there is on drugs, I believe. I think, some, I think th- that would be pretty accurate. I I'm think. paraphrasing, maybe not Which even. Which was not really well accepted by some of our listeners. No, you got some uh, You got some response there. If you want to uh, communicate with Dr. Stu, ask drstu at gmail.com. If you have a medical question, of course, he takes a lot of time, professional time with those questions and issues and does respond. And sometimes, or, or, you know, they can find me on Facebook too because I always post these podcasts on Facebook. But and- we should have on your regular website a link to your Facebook page on the Dr. Stu's podcast website page. There True. Should, there should, we'll, so we'll get that done. And also a ton of blogs and great reading there on the uh, website. So you had to break it to uh, Maddie and say, uh, baby, daddy loves you. You're my number one Well, there girl. was more than just one factor. I mean, it wasn't all decided based on Randy Wang's opinion of Coachella. But Although I think he was pretty persuasive. Well, here's the deal. I mean, she came to me the day before the tickets were on sale. The tickets sell out in one day, so you have to buy the tickets the next day. I you felt n- ambushed. I felt ambushed, which she and I have had long talks about many times, that if she wants to do something like that, that she needs to give me and her mom plenty of notice so that we can investigate it, we can think about it. We don't want to find out the night before or that that she needs money for some school project or something else. We want to know ahead of time. And this is one of those things. But that wasn't, again, the main reason we said no. The main reason we said no is because she didn't really have a good plan. She planned to go with her brothers. And that was it. She didn't well, have a group They of love her and take care of her. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Her 21-year-old brothers are going to be responsible for her for 72 hours at a music festival for three days. When they have their own uh, list of objectives. Yes. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to be off doing their thing. I'm not saying they're not going to be drinking. They legally can do these sorts of things. They'll probably certainly be smoking things that uh, that people smoke at these sorts of things. And sure. I'm not saying it's a complete drug fest. And I'm not saying that there aren't responsible people there. And I'm not saying that my daughter is certainly... I mean, I know my daughter is very responsible. The problem is people around her may not be so responsible. And my my sons are not going to be wanting to be uh, responsible for her they don't 24 want, hours a day. They, She's, they, they don't walk her to the bathroom. Yeah, they don't want to be her chaperone. One of the right. things uh, that you wrote on Facebook that made me laugh out loud, you said to a, a, a woman who listens to Dr. Stu's podcast, and you said, look, it's not Maddie. It's not her I'm worried about. It's the other 84,999 people that I've never met that I'm worried about. Yeah, I was, you know, I actually went to the Coachella website because I did, had no idea how many people actually go to that It's thing. gigantic. Well, yeah, they said that last year there were 85,000 people there, so that's where I came up with that number. But but it is, it was, it, I, don't, I don't know who these people are, and, and she doesn't have a group of friends. 
another of my friends on Facebook who commented on that said that she, her 15 and 17 year old sons are going to go now. And, and, and she said they're going with a group of friends. And my comment to that was, they're boys and it's different. My comment was, is that boys and girls, whether you, whether you think I'm a pig or not, the boys and girls are different. You treat your sons differently than you treat your daughters. And I bet that woman you're talking about who's letting her boys go, she probably doesn't have daughters. She does not have a daughter. Right, so she doesn't know. Right. You've had an experience uh, to be a parental unit, for lack of a better term, for boys and girls. Yeah, Coachella isn't going anywhere, and my daughter next year will be 18, and she can do whatever she wants, and she can plan ahead, and she can have a better group of friends that's going with her, and then I'll feel really good about it. She'll feel really good about it. But Coachella's going to be there every year, and you know what? Her favorite band will be there next year, too. Right, right. And probably be a different favorite band. Yeah, well, of course right. it will be. Yeah, but stop with the ambushing. I mean, don't ambush him. Don't ambush the guy. You felt amb- I look at you. You feel like you, you look like you just got it back out of Vietnam. Well, because like I love my daughter, and I, I know. want her to have these life experiences. I think they're great experiences. I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't have wanted my parents to restrict me on that. We had our battles about that. Of course. About what types of things? Oh, about about going with my buddies up uh, camping for uh, oh, a couple of days up in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. Oh, well, okay, that's serious stuff. Yeah, you saw what happened here in Southern California with the wildfires. Three guys uh, sitting around a campfire, apparently smoking some marijuana. The wind blows, and guess what? You got uh, dozens of homes and buildings that are burned down now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't have that problem in Minnesota. We right. have a problem with basically getting rained on and mos- getting beat up by mosquitoes. But, but nonetheless, it was You're still tough guys. It was still going out and doing something that they themselves wouldn't have done yeah right and all parents sort of not all parents but a great majority of parents feel that you know they're want to be protective of their kids they they don't feel comfortable doing something that they themselves maybe has have never done or or does not interest them and they have to realize you got to let go of your kid at some point and let them do these things but there has to be some sort of mutual respect and relationship going on and this was sort of an ambush as you said yeah all right well uh okay glad to wrap that up for folks because uh there were emails about it and and i do appreciate all the input i mean it was really nice to see people tell me that i should do it differently and they were people that really were insulted by what randy had to say and there were other people that we're very supportive of what Randy. Oh no, you'll say. find very quickly doing this. And here we are at what podcast thirty-eight of Doctor Stu's podcast. Everybody has an opinion on everything. They want to talk about how this one sounds. This one's a jerk. This one's too smart. This one's too flippant. This one's too funny. This one doesn't think things through. This one thinks he knows everything. Everything. Everybody's got a you know a, a, a their well, own con- controversy is good for uh, for radio and podcasts. It is right? good. Now I wanted to ask you here. I want to talk a little bit about the evolution here toward home birthing. All of this started well. We have so many listeners to Doctor Stu's podcast who are not pregnant uh, women, uh, and they're not uh, dudes uh, who are soon to be dads. Uh, because we cover a lot of issues. Like last night, we talked about the flu shot and vaccinations and and whatnot. Uh, home birthing is really what started it all because very quickly, reset in a minute, uh, what it is you do in, tom- in terms of home birthing. You don't deliver, but you're an OBGYN, been practicing for years here in Southern California. You and I are friends. Uh, you, you don't deliver babies in hospitals anymore. That's right. That's right. You want you, you want me to talk about why that is? You know, well, you don't have to talk even so much about why that is, but your discovery of home birthing and whether or not you feel that you're making change, that evolution is happening, that more and more people are being becoming aware of of the option of having a baby, not just at home, but out of the hospital. We had a guest once to, who uh, uh, very kindly took issue with my term uh, home birthing or out of hospital, and she said just it's out of hospital birthing. It doesn't have to be at home. Because, you know, mammals have babies in the woods and that's out of hospital, but it's not the home, you know. So uh, have, have you found in the time personally and professionally that you've invested in this effort 
that there is a trend moving at least in the right direction. Look, home birthing, out of hospital birthing is not taking over the world or the birth or it's not really <laughs> not, not the United States. It's not not no. nearly. And the percentage is something like one percent, right? One or two percent. It, it's actually up to one point four percent. One point four. Okay, in so two thousand and twelve. Okay, so one and a half of every one, two of every two hundred babies are born outside of the hospital in America. Three, about three. About three, I'm sorry, right. Right, and probably 95% of those are planned and probably five to 10% are unplanned. I don't know for sure. I think the unplanned number probably stays about the same every year. And so the increase that's gone up from about 0.86% to 1.4% has probably mostly been people who've made the choice to do home birthing. It's, you know, anytime there's change in any sort of system, um, there, there are two types of change. There can be radical change that occurs because something comes out that says, you know, you have to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, you're going to get sued or something like that in the United States. And so there's change that occurs immediately. And one of the things I'm thinking of is something like the term breach trial that came out in 2000 that within a year changed breach birth worldwide, all right? Then there are things that happen very slowly, that people will come out with discoveries or ideas that are accepted very slowly. And I was thinking about this. That's why we're sort of talking about it now. Right. And I was thinking about uh, some things in medical history. And there was a guy named Ignaz Semmelweis, who lived in the 19th century in Austria, and he was a pioneer in um, an obstetrical procedures and antiseptic procedures. I see. And he developed the uh, a clinic where there's the survival from something called purpural sepsis, which is what women died from in childbirth, was astronomically better than anyone else in the world at that time. Oh, wow. And he did it by simply washing his hands with an antiseptic lye solution between patients they know no one ever used to wash their hands so no one else was doing that no no one knew it because there was no such thing as a germ theory no one knew anything about bacteria well forgive me people were washing their hands just not with his solution no most people didn't wash their hands in that era give me the era again 1860s even doctors yeah, doctors didn't wash their hands. Well, so when little house in the little house in the prairie, Laura Ingalls goes to the doctor. Yeah, that guy, Doc, uh, or no, that's Reverend. Well, Alden. that was eighteen eighty already. That was oh, eighteen ninety. Okay, still, okay, but there's a fair chance Doc Baker. That was his name. When Half Pint went to see Doc Baker on Little House, there's a decent chance Doc Baker didn't wash his hands. That would be correct. If you Charles ever, would yeah, have knocked him out. If Charles saw, Ingalls was an aggressive dude. He would have knocked that guy to the ground if he knew that. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I will tell you that if you watch Dances with Wolves, the very beginning scene where they're cutting off legs and stuff like that, there's no gloves. There's no antiseptic. There's yeah, no nothing. That's true. They're just doing it because they didn't know about bacteria. So anyway, so but not until years after he died... And Louis Pasteur discovered the germ theory. Did his idea of washing hands become accepted? Even though he had great numbers, his peers did not accept that that was the cause. See, and, and I'm confused. I thought Louis Pasteur invented milk. I'm totally confused. He invented, you know, he invented <laughs> pasteurizing. So now let me ask you, buddy. <laughs> no, cows invented milk, what, I think. It, it, well, if you ma could, mammals did, actually. If you could, God. Invented God, milk. God. If you can, God invented Louis Pasteur. By the way, too. speaking of milk, did you hear uh, Richard Blumenthal, the senator, on the floor there toasting milk? Milk's back. Uh, on the floor of the U.S. Senate, the guy from Connecticut. Indeed, reflecting the importance of milk to America is the fact that it is the only beverage. At this point, he's holding up a glass of milk. Other than water, 
that is permitted on the floor of the United States Senate so far as— I bet there's some other liquids that get on the floor. I would suspect that there's probably some flasks that are being brought in there. Now, let me ask you back to— Wait, well, that's really interesting. Do you want to hear that? that No, but I'm just saying I hope that he's as accepting of breastfeeding and breast milk as he is— He's a Democrat. I suspect he is. Well, he replaced Lieberman. Oh, like Republicans don't want to breastfeed their babies? Well, well, yeah. Maybe that's why they're so mean. I never called them mean. Some of them are mean. If I think you, you called them mean. I've heard you on your show call them okay, mean, Okay, some, actually. yeah, and you bet. Some conservatives yeah. are mean. Yes. And you know what? Um, most Democrats are progressive. Most conservatives are not progressive in their Yeah, but game. breastfeeding is not progressive. Breastfeeding well, was is primordial. Well, but it's done the 180. It's done the 360. It was... It was the thing, so it was standard. But then, with formula, it became sort of not the thing to do. Then it then it sort of had a. But you, uh, do you understand? Do you understand that that this is this is a confirmation of what I'm talking about? Is that is that these things change? You know, even though we know breastfeeding is good for babies, sure, it's still taken 40 years or more to get people off of the formula idea of the 50s and 60s when babies were being fed by formula. And when did, was it the 50s, that formula? Uh, Probably before that. I don't really know exactly when, but all I know is when I went into medical school in the 70s and 80s, that that formula was a big deal. And, and if and, a baby was eating formula, that meant yes or no, that mom never breastfed. It was just formula. Yeah, often they didn't breastfed. We used to give shots of medication to dry up breast milk. Or we put tight bras on with with ice on their breasts to make sure they didn't get breast milk so they wouldn't get engorged so they could feed their baby with formula. formula. Yeah, this is this is what we were doing. And in your practice. This is, at, this is at progressive hospitals like Cedars-Sinai and U, but it's LA so County, USC. Really, it's, it's like you, you, we should put you in the Smithsonian because like during the years of your practice, yeah. you've seen all of these changes. I mean, not from you know a shade of blue to a shade of green, from black to white. You've seen paradigm shifts in the way we care for pregnant women in America in the three decades you've been practicing. Yeah, yeah, I have, and I've seen a lot of the- Doesn't that kind of blow your mind sometimes? Well, what blows my mind is that is that I look at these things logically, and I've tried to evolve where evolution needs to take place. What blows my mind is the fact that institutions, like I used to work at, you asked me the question of why I'm not there at hospitals anymore, right. is because a lot of institutions are stuck not- evolving. They're stuck with information that either is convenient or expedient or medically legally uh, keeps them in a safe, what they think is a safe place. And they're not making those sorts of changes. They're the people that Semmelweis had great statistics and his peers, it, it, it was, it was, they had cognitive dissonance to him or something. They couldn't accept the fact that his theory was correct. Why didn't they all just start washing their hands and see if it worked? But they resisted until way after his death. Right. Right. The same thing with with uh, the guy that discovered penicillin, Fleming. All right. Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928 totally by accident. All right. He was working with bacterial plates. And in August of 1928, he left a bunch of plates dirty in his sink and went away on vacation for a month and came back in September and found that on some of the plates there was mold growing. And around the area of mold, the bacteria had died. Hmm. And then he surmised that there was something that, that was uh, causing that to happen, and he discovered penicillin, but not until 1940, 12 so in, years later. So indeed, penicillin had grown on the plate. The mold penicillinase had grown on the plate. I see. And it was making something, which he named penicillin, right, okay. as the medication. And, but it didn't become a medication until, the, until World War II in 1940 when it became commercially available. And very necessary. But it took 12 years for them to figure this out, even though... He had discovered it at this time, and it could have saved a lot of lives in those 12 years. So this, Things are changing. But like, slowly. Yeah, it's extremely slowly. And home birth, 
and, and not necessarily home birth, but birth choice is something that is going to come. It's going to come, and it already is in other countries where collaboration between midwives and doctors are so much better, like in, in, in the Netherlands or Iceland or those other countries that, that do it better than we do. But change is going to come here too, whether it's going to be because of economics or because of, of client demand. It's something's going to happen, but you think it would happen sooner. And if hospitals really had the best interest of people that they take care of in, in, in mind, they would then find ways to give patients more choice It'd be good for patients, it'd be good for babies, it'd be good for marketing, it'd be good for everything, but they're so resistant to those things because that's human nature, is to resist something until someone else does it first. Because of fear or because of economic concerns? Well, you, or, you, pick. you pick. You pick, Brian. Is it possible it's all of those things? Of course it is. Yeah, right. Of course it is. Economics is a huge thing in, 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 in defining how we do things right now and, and how things are marketed uh, to us and how we're told of what's good or not, you know, and safety is this big issue that we, I've always said many, many times, safety is a hammer that's used to make people do what they want, what get the people to do what you want them to do. Yeah. It's very, you can interesting. always say that parents do it to their children and um, the medical profession does it to the, to the rest of America. It's interesting. You say change takes time. And then we go back uh, to what we talked about a few minutes ago. 1.3% of babies born in America are born at home or outside of the hospital. Okay. That might sound like a low number. In fact, it is a small, a very 50,000 babies a year. Okay. It's 50,000 babies a year, but it's a very small percentage. But when you tell the penicillin story and other stories like this, it gives you reason to hope. It gives you reason to believe that uh, I don't know how many years it is down the line. Do you often think about how many years? Is it is it five, six generations down the line when you really do see a paradigm shift? Or By the way, at, at this point, Dr. Stu, since we're at Podcast 38, at this point, 2014, uh, as we get to 2020, that's the nearest milestone. 2015 is only next year. It's too close. So looking out to 2020, what set of circumstances evolving or occurring would you in the home birth movement regard as victory for those who are in the home birth community by 2020? I would say that I'm not looking at any numbers at all. I'm looking at a, at a, a change in the mindset of, of institutions like hospitals and organized medicine to work in collaboration with midwives, with collaboration with people that believe that there are alternatives. I would love to see uh, them realize that the hospital model, which they are so protective of right now, is leading to a, a C-section rate of one in three, and that can't be good, that there's got to be something wrong with their model, and and them to have own self-reflection and self-evaluation to say, you know, we may not believe in giving birth at home, but what we're doing in the hospital ain't so good. So let's come up with somewhere, some sort of collaboration where it's easy for people to start at home, but if they don't feel comfortable at home, then we're, we're going to open our arms to them and bring them into the hospital, but we're going to make it uh, more home-like in the hospital so that we can get our numbers to be better. We're going to retrain doctors to do breaches. We're going to allow VBACs in our hospital. We're going to tell insurance companies who tell us we can't do them to go stuff it. We're going to self-insure. We're going to argue for tort reform so we can change things in this country so that we can do what's better for our moms and babies than what we're doing right now. Sounds like a political action group. It's going to take... Uh, um, that political action will be part of it. It's going to be a grassroots thing. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to be a new younger generation of more, as you always say with your two fingers up, uh, progressive uh, thinking to 
get rid of the old school guys who are protecting their turf mm -hmm. and realize that this isn't a turf battle. All right. This is about mothers and babies and what's best for the future of our species and, and, and our and our people in the United States. And specifically our family. And well and the and the the family well, unit, the yeah, family we, involved, we, the family making the decision well, to have the baby at home. I mean, it, that's what it all comes down to. Do babies do babies who are not never separated from their parents and their, their mother? Do babies who are breastfed? Do babies who who um, you know, are, are or mothers who labor without interference? Do they have better outcomes? And I would suggest that if you select your patients properly, they do. Mm. All right, and if you have better outcomes to start these things, then I th then I think it makes logical sense that. Everything that follows, if you have a more nurturing beginning, you probably have a more nurturing childhood and a more calm and peaceful set of neurons in your brain and how everything goes from there. We've got to talk on this episode of Dr. Stu's podcast about a very big story that's gotten a lot of attention across the country. And of course, uh, our podcast is always pre-recorded, usually just a couple of days be before you hear it. But this is the story of a Texas judge. We talked about Jahi McMath, the girl in Oakland uh, who was not pregnant, but uh, she was deemed by three doctors to be dead, that her brain had died. This story is a bit different at happens in a different place. It happens in Texas, which is more conservative, obviously. A Texas judge has recused herself from hearing a lawsuit against a Fort Worth hospital regarding this woman who is brain dead. She's also pregnant and she's on life support against her own family's wishes. Judge Melody Wilkinson recused herself, but did not give a reason for her recusal. Can you, can you do that? Apparently you can. I didn't know you could. I didn't know. I thought you'd have to have a reason to recuse yourself. She requested to have another judge assigned to the case. Now, let's give you the background information. The family of Marlise Munoz sued John Peter Smith Hospital in order to have Munoz removed from life support. A 33-year-old paramedic, Miss Munoz was, Mrs. Munoz was 14 weeks pregnant when a suspected pulmonary embolism left her brain dead two months ago. Oh, that's tragic. But doctors at John Peter Smith Hospital told her family that a Texas law forbade them from withdrawing life support until the baby's birth or a miscarriage occurs. Now listen to this quote from the mother of the pregnant woman again who was on life support. So and this would be the baby's grandmother. Baby, Thank you, Dr. Stu. Yeah. Okay. okay. She says, quote, it's very frustrating because we know what our daughter wanted. We're not about to honor that because of this. Meaning, wait, 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 wait. Say that again. It's very frustrating because we know what our daughter wanted. We're not about to honor that because of this law. And uh, wait, did they mean they want to honor her daughter's wishes, but yes. they're not about to do it because the law won't let them? Is that what she's saying? The quote continues. Okay, good, because that's a little confusing to the me. The grieving process as a whole for me and for my husband Eric Munoz's husband won't. Uh, she misspoke there. Oh, for, oh, for her husband and Eric, for Grandma, Grandpa, and the son-in-law. Uh, the grieving process won't happen until she's off of life support. This family wants her off of life support. The argument here in the morning we've had on the morning answer, not an argument, but a conversation about this, is that basically uh, I've had very smart people like my co-host here basically say, Dr. Stu, and I'm, I, I really want to know what you think, this woman who is brain dead, uh, which again, and you did it a couple of podcasts ago, you, you identified brain death as saying there's no brain function showing on an EKG. EEG. EEG. I'm right. so I'm sorry. Forgive me. The ventilator breathes for her. Right. Uh, without those systems, she would pass. Right. Okay. This woman is now essentially a human incubator 
for that baby. Yes, she is. And according to a report that I read, and I don't know if it's in this one, but I read it this morning, she is the baby is still a month away from being viable outside of the womb. The hospital's turning to a the, month. A month. So she must be more than 14 weeks pregnant then by that, now. That's what it sounds like. The family hopes that the judge orders the hospital to remove Munoz from life support and that he finds that the law uh, and, and finds that the law keeping her on it is unconstitutional. John Peter Smith Hospital is a local public hospital in Tarrant County. The DA's office will represent it. The office had no comment. Listen to this. Munoz, the pregnant woman, got out of bed in the middle of the night on November 26th because the couple's 14-month-old son began to cry. When the baby continued to cry and Munoz didn't return, Munoz's firefighter husband got up too, both of them paramedics, as I said. That's when he found uh, his wife on the kitchen floor. She was not breathing and had no pulse. Her skin had taken on a bluish color, according to Machado. That's, uh, I believe, the husband. I don't know who that is. Doctors suspect she had a pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lungs, but they won't know until an autopsy can be performed. And you can't perform an autopsy, right, until somebody is off of life <laughs> right. support. So, right. so, but, but Dr. That, Stu- that would be bad form to do an autopsy on someone who's still I, alive. I right? would say so. so. So your initial thoughts, I have some questions for you, but your initial thoughts here. Well, my initial thoughts are always never to really try to make too many judgments from a news report, as we've talked about before, because we don't know the facts. Um have they been told that if they give the baby another month or six weeks that the baby has a chance of living? And if so, have they been told that the baby may have suffered an injury because of the mother's hypoxia, the lack of oxygen for a period of time? I don't right. know how long the mother was out. I don't know if they've, you know, there's not enough information here for me to really make a decision, make a, even a judgment. But for all expected reasons, it's become quite a political issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused as to the family's wishes with the baby inside. I understood if she's not pregnant, I don't think there's this, it's, it's even controversial. Right, but, but I've said before, I don't know or you don't know or the people I've talked to, I don't know anybody who knows this family personally. Should we conclude that the husband knows his wife, they're both paramedics, that he knows that she doesn't want to live in a permanent vegetative state. And when you talk about the value of life or caring for life, is the idea just to keep her alive until uh, she can give birth to the baby. If that's your opinion, folks, I respect it tremendously. Really and truly, I do. I respect that good people have different feelings about very sensitive issues. I know that you've told me, Dr. Stu, in the past, I don't think I'm pulling this out of thin air, you have, in fact, delivered babies when mom was comatose, right? Correct. I have, I have in my residency program, right? And With, the mother, mother eventually died, but we were able to get the, the uh, one time the baby actually lived uh-huh. for a little period of time and then died. And the other one, the, the baby actually did die also uh, shortly after birth. So we, we, we weren't able to save the baby either uh-huh. time, uh-huh. but we kept the mothers alive as long as we could. One woman had for the what was and do you remember the family? No names, of course. Obviously, you know that the families involved was it their position that they knew they would lose mom? They knew she was going to die, or in fact was yes, dead already. Yes. But they wanted her to be maintained so that the baby could be born. Yes, in both of the cases, my, did you? And I'm sorry to pepper yeah, you with sure. questions, but this is sort of what I do. Did you, when that was communicated to you, did you find them? selfish did you find no 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 no, did you find i thought you know again i i thought it was a very reasonable choice i mean both of these families were a little further babies were a little further along than this one was Uh but nonetheless um 
you know, I understand that, that there, as you said earlier, I respect both sides of this argument of whether or not they, you know, whether whether it's a pro-life or pro-choice. It's not really that argument. It's, it's a, not. It's a completely different argument. It's about, about what, a family. It's about the family and the husband and the next of kin wanting to do what's best for the poor woman who's sitting there uh, brain dead. Uh, vegetating. I right. asked my friend Ben Shapiro, uh, who uh, does the morning answer with me and Dr. Stu's podcast being done from our studio at KRLA in Los Angeles today. Uh, I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if we had a videotape, so I'll ask you, if we had a videotape of the young woman, uh, Munoz, and her husband, or not even her husband, her on video, saying into the camera, uh, I never want to be on life support. And then, and what, what if, and this is hypothetical, of course. And what if she said, and even if I'm pregnant, I don't want to be on life support. What if her wishes in this circumstance were that clearly communicated to her family and by extension the world through media? Right. Would we then have to respect her wishes? Because I, I don't know that uh, Texas I, state I, law says you do. Yeah, well, I, I don't know Texas state law. I personally would want to respect her wishes, yeah. I would want to respect her wishes I would as well. Re I would respect them instantly. Uh, I don't think there would be any question about it. You know, people t always tell you to have a living will or, or a, uh, what do you call the thing, the, the um, piece of paper that says. The DNR. Well, there's a there's a there's another name for it, and uh, Doctor Stu's having a, a brain fart. That's brain okay. Fart. That's okay. But um, oh, what is that word? Anyway, but it's like a living will. Yes, right. it, it just basically is a, a directive. A, yeah, advanced directive. That's uh -huh. what I think I'm talking about. And we uh, should play on the pyramid game. We'd be great. But on here's the, the here's the game. problem. Here's the problem with that is that is that it doesn't seem like any legal document in the United States can actually holds water anymore because. The, there's too many lawyers and they're all challenging. They all challenge it. There's always lawyers for one side or the other side and things get tied up in court. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of the extreme is like the death penalty. Somebody gets a death penalty and 31 years later, they're still alive. I mean, and, and so that sort of thing. So, you know, what does it mean when you have a piece of paper that says, this is what I want? And that's just become very confusing in our society too. Getting back to this specific case, however, though, if, if that's what the family wants, and, and they know that the baby will also die and it's their choice to do it, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's a higher level of authority than, than the state. But ultimately, in the United States, each state has its own say. And I don't know we'd be having the same argument if this were taking place in California or in, in New York State. Mm. But Texas is a, is a tough state sometimes. The People's Republic of Texas, it's often called, uh, you know, for reasons like this. They're, they, they are very... Um yeah, yeah, this is the, the this is there's no it's answer. Very to sad the, story. There's no answer to this one. Uh, it's completely tragic. And again, getting the inf getting our information from a news report, third or fourth hand, is really only good for us to have this conversation. Yeah, I trust the news report. I mean, I really do. I, I've seen family members be interviewed, so, so I trust. Well, they don't mention anything about the fetus and was the fetus injured? Was there any risk? Did they feel that the fetus? Yeah, I don't think they know, and that begs a question. If indeed, uh, let's say by by the courts, uh, this young woman is is forced uh, to remain. Uh, in a vegetative state until the point that the baby is delivered. And let's say the baby comes out with all sorts of problems. Uh, the father there who's a single dad, is he now the person who cares for that baby for the rest of his life? Because that's expensive. Or does the state of Texas that through the tentacles of their legislation compelled that birth, shouldn't they have to foot the bill? You know what? This would take an ethics committee six months yeah. to come, to come think, up with an answer Do you think we could that. board it? Do you think we could, we could be the boards? 
the board of directors on that ethics committee. Uh, I don't, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't even want to be on. I wouldn't <laughs> okay. want to be on that ethics committee because <laughs> right. I don't know that there is a right answer. It's a tough one, isn't it? Right. It is. It's I a mean, tough if one. The father, if the parents, are, if the husband and the and the grandparents want the life support pulled, I just don't see how you can fight with that. Very I, quickly and really in thirty seconds, when you delivered babies, Doctor Stu, and mom was comatose, and mom, you said, short, uh, died shortly after the birth. Yeah, one uh, actually, one of the mothers had HIV uh, encephalitis and died shortly. The other one had severe cystic fibrosis and was okay. basically terminal. I, I want to be delicate. I, it's biological, right? I would assume the pushing happens anyway. Even no, no, the contractions happen anyway and the, and the dilation gets to complete. They obviously can't do any voluntary pushing. Right. So eventually the baby would be expulsed by the uterus. Uh-huh. But in, jo- in general, uh, if you're monitoring the baby and, the, and you want to just shorten the thing, then you at that point you put on a vacuum or forceps. And you, and you did and that. You, you, you delivered that baby because the family wanted that. That's my recollection. We're talking right. 30 years ago. Right. Okay. Wow. Right. Fascinating story. As always, fascinating stories. Great to spend more time with you. You too. Yeah. You thanks. Too. And thanks for yeah, handling I'm, I'm this. I'm a lot better than I was 45 minutes ago when you, we did our first show. You sound like a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. My voice is getting better. If you have an email, ask Stu at gmail.com, ask Stu at gmail.com, or go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, Dr. Stu's podcast on iTunes and get notified every time there's a new podcast, write them a nice review. Give him five stars. He's the best. We'll see you next time. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us here on Dr. Stu's Podcast. 